This episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast is brought to you by Too Soon and Beginnings by, by Julian Dion. Yeah, that's right. My two comedy albums, Too Soon and Beginnings, now available for digital download at jdcomedy.ca. jdcomedy.ca. It's Friday, September 8th, and you're listening to a brand new episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast on today's uh, episode. Yes, again. For a long time, this is going to happen every day, Monday to Friday. Wakefield Sessions continues with my guest today. Oh, man, this is a doozy. She's my neighbor, and she's also the Ottawa Riverkeeper. Meredith Brown is my guest. We talk all things water and rivers and life, and uh, it's a good one. And it all starts now. Friday, it's Frickety Friday, remember the movie Freaky Friday, the remake with uh, Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis, I actually went to see that movie, I had advanced tickets for a premiere, like a screening, private screening at a theater in Vancouver with my aunt Ginny, and my aunt Ginny at the time must have been late 70s, and I was in my early 20s. Like 20. And I went to see Freaky Friday starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan with my Aunt Ginny. Anyway, I digress. Welcome to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. Hi, hi, hi. Coming at you from Lemon Press Studios in the old Gatineau Hills. Welcome to Wakefield Sessions, everybody. This is episode five this week. This I've not done this before. This is it's been a labor intensive project, labor of love. But getting tons of good feedback. Thank you for the feedback and keep keep it coming by emailing the show pod at jdcomedyhour.com. That's P-O-D, by the way. There's no silent H. Did you really think there was a silent H in there? Somewhere? Pod at jdcomedyhour.com, like on facebook.com slash jdcomedyhour, follow on Instagram and Twitter at jdcomedyhour, thank you, subscribe on YouTube and iTunes and all that shit. My guest today, oh man, this was, I, I, I sound repetitive, if you've listened to all five episodes, I start the same way, ooh, this is a good one, I mean it this time though. Meredith Brown, Ottawa Riverkeeper, Meredith Brown is my guest she traveled far and wide to get here. She traveled up the hill. She's my neighbor. And uh, she's a lovely, great person. 
She has a very fascinating, fascinating job, career, life. So we talk all things rivers and bodies of waters, zisses, and things associated with said things. You know what I'm getting at. Meredith Brown is my guest today. How are you? Are you good? Any plans for the weekend? I'm all, ch- I'm all, t- I'm talked out. I gotta be honest. Because this is the fifth episode that's aired this week, but I've done a bunch of interviews to have a few in the can for next week, and it's just talk, talk, talk. And uh, sometimes, somehow, or sometimes, do you get this feeling where the sound of your own voice just makes you want a projectile vomit kind of all over the place? I, uh, that's, that's where I'm at right now. I'm about to uh, PV all over the hizzy, all over my desk. And, um, but I won't, I won't, I won't puke because then I'll have to clean it and that's, hmm, not good. I, um, wait, let me, I had some notes written. Let let me get, let me get some notes because I'm all chatting. No, I can't find them. Forget it. I'm just going to wing it. Well, I had a very Wakefield day today. I went to, I went to the convenience store in my slippers. I'm almost at the point where I'm going to go in my robe, my house coat. I'm debating. Slippers, they're almost like shoes, right? They're like flip-flops, almost. They're the kind that sort of have a sole, but they're like a flannel. So you can tell it's not really a shoe-shoe, but, you know, nobody cares. And I left my, uh, this is, and this is another Wakefield thing. I did my alarm system, like I don't have an alarm system on my house. So what I did as a security measure to leave, first of all, you don't lock this. Cause in a big city, you go anywhere, you lock up everything. You check twice, make sure, cause you'll come back and there'll be a new family living in your house. Just somebody claiming it. So you have to lock shit or people take your shit in big cities. But here... The alarm system here is you put on Adult Alternative on Stingray on the TV, crank that up to about 26 volume, leave the door unlocked and leave. That will deter anybody that that wants to claim your things. Anybody that wants to come in and steal your shit will walk in, oh, the door's unlocked, and then, oh, no, there's, there's sweet Adult Alternative playing in the background. There's somebody home. Let's get out of here. So and I went to the store with my slippers. And third, a Wakefield thing, I had a 39-minute conversation with the person working at the convenience store. I got to get that guy's name. You guys know him. I think he owns the place at the uh, Wakefield Express. <laughs> this is very inside, by the way. For for non-Wakefield, there's, they're like, what the sh- What am I listening to right now? You know, the guy, the Wakefield Express. The guy with the, the sick silver flow. Great guy and mean forearms. I don't know. I don't know what that guy does, but he's built. His forearms are just strong, strong AF, as the kids say. Meredith Brown is my guest today. Did I say that? So thank you, Wakefield. This is getting a lot of uh, attention around here. A lot of people are commenting, and um, and uh, it's good. People are talking. Did an interview with the lowdown, lowdown to Holland back today. And that's going to come out on Wednesday, so thank you. So maybe you get to know me. So now if you see me around, you'll you'll really know things about me, I guess. Even though I I haven't really super gotten into myself that much, 
I'm from New Brunswick originally, grew up with four sisters, and until the age of 13, I thought I wore panties. There's a little tidbit. With four sisters, the terminology sometimes gets lost, and it wasn't until I was other, uh, around other guys that, uh, you know, boys my age, and I was like, excuse me, I'm going to remove my panties. Why am I removing my panties around my friends? I referred to my panties at some point, and I don't, you know, I don't wear panties, or do I? I didn't. I learned uh I learned the hard way that I do not or nor did I ever wear uh panties. So there's a little tidbit of information for me from from about me. Grew up four sisters, studs out of Moncton, New Brunswick, small town, and uh soups religious family, upbringing Catholic. So much though that that I was, you know, Kids have fears growing up. My fear was the Virgin Mary. And let me elaborate on that. I was scared because uh, we would always talk about these apparitions and how a blessing it would be <laughs> to have the Virgin Mary appear to you. And I was scared shitless of that notion. I, I was terrified. We have a cabin in the woods. It's not that far behind our house where I grew up. And uh, I remember full sprints. It's maybe a quarter mile in the bush. Not even. And I full sprints of fear that the sacred mother would appear to me. You know, that's usually that's supposed to be like a good notion. Like, oh, it's so, it was amazing. She, she appeared out of nowhere. I was like, she, please don't appear because I will soak my panties if the Virgin Mary appears to me. So that's kind of, so there you go. Two little tidbits. Maybe I'll throw a tidbit here or two. Here or two? <laughs> I'm tired. Did I mention I'm talked out? I'm so talked out. I've talked, talk, 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 talk to talk, talk. Because if you've listened to the interviews, they're they're not five minute question and answer things. They're long. I completely go into them unprepared. Sometimes I'll look up a thing or two about the person that I'm interviewing just so I have jumping off points. But for the most part, I just wing it. I go in and I wing it. And so that just is, uh, it's great. I love connecting with people, but at the same time right now, I'm drained. I'm going to go watch, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to drop this interview right now with uh, with uh, Meredith, Mary Brown. And uh, I'm going to go watch Coronation Street, Corey. Any Corey fans out there? It's really good right now. Are you caught up? It's amazing. I won't give away spoilers, but oh man, oh man. I'm obsessed with Coronation Street. One thing I do like about the show is they take acting on a whole... Like, they're really good actors, but they do it completely, like, different. They break all of the rules of of television, film, and TV acting. For example, when somebody... In in an American TV show or, or... Or movie, when somebody has a... A scene where they eat... They usually don't have lines when they're eating or they pretend to eat or they like, you know, load up the fork and they deliver their line and then they'll have a bite or, you know, it makes it seem it flows, but never, never both at the same time in Coronation Street. It's almost like an acting challenge where there'll be a scene of four or five people sitting around a table, actor's line, cue the line, takes a big bite of food and, uh... Just delivers the line, mouth full of food. That's that's the kind of reality that I like. That's what I connect to. That sort of authenticity in, in television. And everything's beige.
It's good. All right, enough of that. These random ran- ramblings. See, I'm a mumbly magoo. Right now, because I'm uh, I'm tired. So let me get uh, into it now, because you're gonna love this. This was really fascinating. I was uh, it's I just love this chat that we had, and um, it was I learned a lot. And again, I I ask naive, dumb questions sometimes because first of all, this is, they come from an honest place, and and maybe you have those same questions, maybe. So Wakefield, here we go. The Ottawa Riverkeeper. Ottawa Riverkeeper, right here, living here in the hills, in the village. You're going to love it. She's our own. Our own. What am I saying? I'm not making any sense now. So enjoy my chat now with the one, the only, Meredith Brown. And yes, once again, this episode is brought to you by Too Soon and Beginnings, my two personal comedy albums. Yeah, that's right. My two live comedy albums that I've worked very hard to put out there are available now for digital download at jdcomedy.ca. Yeah, I know you're curious. You hear me on here talking and interviewing, and you must wonder what, you know, what it's like. I do comedy for a living. Maybe you've been to a show. You want to capture that again. You want to want a little souvenir. Well, go to jdcomedy.ca and download Too Soon and Beginnings. jdcomedy.ca. What's that? What's that? You want a little taste? Sure, I'll get... Oh, I'll wet your beak. Here's Too Soon. My, da- my dad actually killed a rooster once by its legs uh, against a um, barn wall. That happened. (laughs) That was a real thing. I ran over a raccoon and I cried myself to sleep for a week. (laughs) A week! (laughs) Here's beginnings. This is weird. I just looked at Reject and he went like this. (laughs) Which usually means fucking, right? (laughs) Usually it's like... Oh, CPR, got it, okay. You're not gonna come up here and have your way with me in front of my, my passed out. You're like, yeah, all right, here we go. Right. What am I even talking about in those clips? Well, only one way to find out. Download Too Soon in Beginnings at jdcomedy.ca. That's jdcomedy.ca. Do it today. You and me belong. Just like the flowers, laughing all day long. People I need to lose, sing a little song. Then take a shower, Julian Dion, comedy hour. All right, here we are. Wakefield Sessions continues. It's Friday. This is the fifth... um episode i guess i was gonna say rendition that doesn't make sense and uh my guest today i'm very excited to uh to chat uh with her she's uh my neighbor and she's also the ottawa river keeper living right here in the gatineau hills so we're gonna get into that uh, meredith brown mary brown how are you i'm great thanks for uh thanks for doing this uh i appreciate it first of all and just to let you know a little bit about the concept of um of the podcast, essentially, it's uh, so it's Wakefield Sessions, so it's all things Wakefield, people living here, and this is my way to introduce Wakefield to the world, and to local people, it'll also give another perspective, dimension, or whatnot uh, uh, on yourself, so people will see you around, you go, oh, no, yeah, no, I really know Mary, <laughs> I know a thing or two, um, so let's just uh, get into it, let's find out, first of all, 
You're the Ottawa River Keeper. That is a title. When, when we first moved in, before I met you, someone told me, they're like, okay, you guys are Canadian. That's you're, that's fine. But do you realize you live on the same street as the Ottawa River Keeper? <laughs> Could you elaborate what, what that entails? What's that, what's that involved? Well, I have been told it's the coolest job title ever, the River Keeper. It um, is. Well, our organization is part of a, an alliance of water keepers around the world. But my job is essentially to protect the fresh water in the Ottawa River watershed and uh, be an advocate for that, for protecting water and having water where we can swim, drink, and fish. So you kind of like overlook or, or cause, because again, yes, the title does imply that you are the river keeper. Anybody that wants to bathe or boat in the river, they must be approved to go through the river keeper. But what if like, a, for example, a corporation wants to set up close to the river upstream or something and dump i don't know how th- these things work by the way on the podcast i ask a lot of naive and dumb questions so just just bear with me but uh, so do you get wind of that do you have like is there an approval process does it go absolutely i make it my business to know everything that's going on in the watershed that might impact the water and the how, river. Do you f- how do you find that out do you, do you get like do you have a desk and this comes Someone comes up, Riverkeeper, there's a, <laughs> there's a new factory upstream that wants to do this. And do you, then do you contact them and see if their, their, I don't know, filtration or whatnot is, is up to code? or how, how does Yeah, that yeah, work? great. Well, I mean, I got eyes and ears all over the watershed for one thing. So mm-hmm. I've built this network of people all over the watershed who live on the river or, you know, working in their community. And so we have a pollution hotline. So people will contact me to let me know what's going on that they think might have an impact on the river. So that's good because the watershed's huge. Yeah, it is huge. It's really huge. It's bigger than England. It's like 140,000 square kilometers. So it's massive. And uh, where is the Ottawa River span from, from where to where on the map? Well, it actually starts north of Ottawa. If you go about 250 kilometers north and the river, yeah. And the river flows west towards... Lake Temiskaming, and then it starts flowing east towards the St. Lawrence River. So the Ottawa River is the largest tributary of the St. Lawrence River. Right. And Where does that meet up? Right at the island of Montreal, of course. Okay. So that's the delta right. in the that river. Sense. Yeah. And the Great Lake St. Lawrence watershed is the world's largest freshwater ecosystem. Is that right? And where we live on the Gatineau River, we're the largest tributary of the Ottawa River. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. You're all about the largest. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a huge watershed. So it yeah. means that to know what's going on everywhere, you really need to be on top of things. But, you know, some... Some challenges are bigger and in the news, but, you know, I'm, and I sit on various different committees and boards and mm-hmm. all over the place. But, uh, so if, if there is something happening that, or proposed to happen, then I try to find out everything about it and, you know, in any way I can. And going straight to the source is always a good one if they're, will talk to you. Yeah. Are, is, are they often because sometimes profit overrides any sort of environmental concerns? So sometimes when you approach these people, do they have kind of their backs up to the wall? Or Well, I try to be really friendly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, ask the right questions and have the right attitude. And really, the attitude is about, hey, you know, we all have this shared responsibility. And chances are those folks have, you know a love of fishing or swimming or maybe their kids like to be in the river. And so I try to approach it as this, like, you know, what can we do to make sure that 
the impact's going to be minimal. But yeah, of it's course, a common it's, interest. You know, everybody's a bit different. So. For sure. So you do have a network of people. So you don't. You don't like as the Ottawa River, Riverkeeper. I pictured you just uh, in a chopper, flying around with a cape on, and <laughs> going, "What's this thing? No, clear, close to my river." I have a question for you, which is kind of not. Well, it is on topic, but where does the um, the St. Lawrence, I don't know if you know this or not, where, where does the salt water and the fresh water, like where does the salt water end and the fresh water begin? Yeah, well, um, have you ever been to Le Massif where there's an amazing ski hill on the yeah, yeah, uh, escarpment? Yeah. And just a little like around there, Bay St. Paul is about where the tides come into and the salt water comes in that far. Wow, and, and then is it like... So you won't have like any sort of fish or anything that come up from the ocean. They'll pretty much, they'll know instinctively. Oh, no, there are. So we have a species in the river that I love to talk about, the American eel. And it's kind of opposite to the salmon. So they uh, spawn in the Sargasso Sea in the Atlantic Ocean. And then they make their way into fresh water. They'll live in fresh water for 10, 15 years and get really big. And then they... Something just happens, goes off, they kind of change, and then they make their way back down the river to the Sargasso Sea no to spawn. Wow. And it's a really cool species, fish, and it's now endangered in our in the Ottawa River. It had the Ottawa River had one of the like most fecund, biggest populations of American eel in the world, and we have so many dams that we've built on the Ottawa River that it has blocked the migration of the species. Is that right? So over time, since the dams were all kind of built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, the population's been dwindling because when they go back down river to spawn, they get chopped up by the turbines. Oh, shit. Yeah. And they can't, <clears throat> you say because of the dams were built in the 30s and 40s, are modern dams, if a, a new dam was to be built, are they more um, conducive to fish being able to go in and out or are those, is this just pretty much well a now death trap? <laughs> it's pretty much a death now there's a few changes but honestly so if there was a dam we we were kind of fighting against a dam proposal a few years ago on the petawawa river and mm -hmm. the if they were to build a dam there they would have a, a stipulation to build it so that these important species could somehow get by them get and migrate. So there would be conditions, but on all the kind of dams that exist now, there's nothing. Yeah. And I mean, there must be a crazy team of people that go, that are behind a dam buildage. Is it just like a bunch of scientists and like, how do, how do they, and how do the hell do they decide where to put a dam and why? Well, it's all about the the potential energy. So you need a Got gradient it. drop, and and the Ottawa River is like a pretty steep river. Like before, all the dams were built, and if you kind of follow the path of the voyageurs going up the river, huge, huge rapids. No, is that right? And and now that we've got all these dams, it's back flooded. And right. so there's no, I mean, we're lucky where we live here on the Gatineau River. We're right at one of the last sets of rapids in the river because there's two dams downstream of us that have back flooded the river. Oh, is that right? So that now there's, we don't have dams anymore, but we've got our rapids anymore, but we have this beautiful little set of rapids yeah, where right we live there. that's so special. Right by the ridge. And you can hear them by, your, in, by in your house, right? Yeah. Yeah. My son, Charlie, his bedroom overlooks the river. And when we have the windows open in the spring, when the water's high, we can hear the rapid. And yeah. I love it. Yeah. 
Okay, explain to me what. How does a rapid uh, happen? Is it that the water's low at that point? And there's a lot of rocks or whatever. Again, naive, dumb questions, but. I wonder that because I see, I always assumed a rapid is like, okay, don't go near them. And then when I was by the covered bridge the other day and people in their paddle boards are trying to go up and falling in and stuff. And I'm like, how are they not breaking everything when they fall in? Oh yeah. The rapids are the funnest part of the river. In fact, Charlie and I love to swim down them. And Really? Oh yeah. How does that happen? So yeah, explain we'll to me a rapid. Like, what? So rapids, I mean, rivers are so fascinating. I love them. Uh, and they have this natural rapid pool sequence. And so the rapid is really just where you have a bit of a gradient drop. So your, your elevation changes and the water is flowing. You know, water always flows downstream mm-hmm. and it always flows in this meandering pattern if you were to just put water even like you put sand on a parking lot and you put water down it it's gonna form this sine wave right so it has these natural frequencies and we call them meanders when it's turning and so you get this this natural sequence also depending on the size of the river and the substrate of what they call riffles or rapids and pools so you get a, a riffle pool sequence in a river as long as you're not screwing around with it like we do and, you know, concrete them up and that kind of thing. But um, so, you know, the rapids I also like to refer to as the lungs of the river because you get lots of variation. It's really good for adding dissolved oxygen and you'll often have different species around rapids. Um, It's a good place for fishing at the bottom of rapids. There's typically kind of a nice big scour hole because the rapids are moving water quickly and so it like arose like a little like a dip kind of that's right and and okay so it's not just all like rocks and like shallower water because i thought so what if if okay just example down here you said you swim in it so what if you just let yourself go in the curtain go down is it just going to be like a little fast for a minute and then you'll be fine yeah i mean I know that rapid really well, so mm-hmm. I kind of know where the obstacles are. and Like rocks and stuff. Yeah, and rule is when you're in the rapid, like keep your bum up, feet first, go down. But um, And not all rapids are equal. There, we in, in the paddling world, we grade the rapids according to kind of how tricky they are to mm-hmm. navigate. Um, but I just did a, a trip on the Coulange River with my family and, uh, and friends of ours. And the kids, we camp, we always made a point of camping right at a rapid. And the kids just spent hours jumping in, swimming in the rapid, going, and it's pretty fun. Well, they have a good teacher in you. I mean, you, you know all kind of about it. Uh, are you ever worried about your kids going in the river? Or do you teach them at a young age, like, just don't be afraid of it and, and respect it, but also just know, you know. Yeah, really. I mean, Water is dangerous, right? So right from the get-go, we had to teach them really clearly, like, know the river, know what it's like. We got them in it when they were young. We taught them how to swim when they were really small. But always, like, you can't be near water without an adult Mm -hmm. and and, because things can go wrong pretty quickly. And um, so you have to really respect it, yeah. And I think the best thing is kind of to teach them how to understand it and to navigate it and... And now they're pretty comfortable on the river. And and Charlie, in fact, will like go down to the covered bridge where there's this big rock and lots of people hang out there. And he'll just run in and dive in and go down the rapid. And I can see all these adults kind of looking <laughs> around like, oh, my God, whose kid is that? Is he okay? Should we be jumping in? And yeah. this sense of like, wow. But really, it's just a matter of, you know, 
understanding and knowing it. And, For sure, like anything else. Yeah. Well, because someone died in those <clears throat> rapids, didn't they, a couple of years ago or something? Someone yeah, that was drunk, right. like intoxicated and they just probably not the best swimmer and... and <clears throat> I think it was a poor swimmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can panic and that's the number one killer in waters. If you panic, you're, you've got no chance, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't really know that when somebody's drowning, it's not like you'll often see somebody like flailing and arms going up all over the place, that it can be really silent, that they just kind of slip under. And Shit. I think that's what happened. It was really... Really sad and unfortunate. Really sad. <clears throat> that's got to be one of the, that's like my nightmare. Like worst way to, to like when I watch the Titanic and uh, there's people just like taking it like in their rooms, lying in the beds, and that historically apparently has happened. That's like my absolute nightmare. You're just in this bed and you're just waiting for your room to fill up with water. Mm. Oh my god! Did you were you ever fearful of water, or did you always kind of <clears throat> were you super into it as a, at a young age? <clears throat> Well, I always grew up right by water, so I was lucky that way. I loved it. But um, no, I mean, I think, and paddling in big rapids still, you know, always gets me a little scared every time. And there's adrenaline rush. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm a a canoeist, whitewater paddler, but not kayaker. And that sense of, you know, in the kayak, you have to, you're underwater, you have to be able to roll, you have to, that kind of scares me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. What's safer in a rapid, kayaks or canoes? Well, I don't know about safer, but with kayaks, you can run much more difficult water than you can in a canoe. Right. But the, then there's but then there's that thing, if you, you're in a kayak upside down, then you're in it, whereas a canoe, you just kind of bail and let the thing go. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's then you're in the rapid, it's all the same. That's true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting anxiety just thinking of all this. <laughs> I'm going to go in the rapids and train myself to to not be so scared of them. You said you grew up by, by water. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in North Bay. And uh, okay. and every summer, my mom would pack her seven kids into the station wagon, and we'd go to our cottage, which was the little rustic A-frame on this lake, Trout Lake. And uh, I just really lived that swim, drink, fish dream. Like we drank our water right out of the river. We, you know, got around by boat and battled and it was great. And the water quality was amazing. And we had this little canoe club on the lake that we were part of. And we'd have regatta every year and kids would come from canoe clubs, you know, from the Rideau River or Mm -hmm. Oakville, like all these other water bodies. And they used to be so happy to get to the North Bay Regatta because the water was so clean that they'd do their race and then they'd purposefully tip their boat so that they could go swimming. Oh, yeah. And I remember they'd be talking about like how clean the water was and then I'd go to these regattas in these places and I was so, like, I couldn't believe that they were training in these water bodies that were really disgusting. They were polluted. Like, you didn't want to swim in them. And when you mean polluted, you're not talking about like natural occurring biological, like biofilm or stuff. You mean like human? Yeah, all kinds of pollution, really. But in in probably all across Canada, I know for sure in the Ottawa River, like the 60s, 70s were the height of pollution. So all the municipalities dumped all their sewage in the river untreated. So no sewage treatment. Everything you flushed went right into the river. Pulp mills were completely unregulated, so they were putting dioxins. I mean, they still do, but to a lesser extent. So all kinds of nasty things in the river. So things were 
really bad and we were running all the logs down the river and so that was for sure the height of pollution is that bad for it running the logs down the river well it just adds a lot of um organic matter to the river and and uh that's not supposed to be there i guess yeah that just you know adds an extra load and and the pulp mills were really bad they used to take the uh, sawdust and they would just dump it in the river so it create these big dead zones on the bottom of the river and oh great so, you know, things have improved, that's for sure. Well, I mean, a river is a living, breathing thing, so how long does it take to regenerate itself if you stop all pollution that's, it's like, I mean, obviously it depends on the degree of the pollution, but can a river come back to, like, pristine quality? Absolutely, this is it. Rivers are really resilient, and, you know, their flow, it's different from a lake, so you've got constant flow through. Um, some things will probably not, will be a lot harder. Like, for example, on the Ottawa River, we have Chalk River nuclear facilities. So they have the world's longest operating uh, nuclear reactor there. Um, and they've been operating since the 40s. And they have contaminated a big section of the riverbed near there. And with things like mercury and strontium and all these things that pretty much bind to the sediments and get immobilized. And yeah. so those sorts of things will never go away crazy We've but you know if you're talking about dumping sewage in the river it's going to flush through right eventually yeah and uh, what about water levels because you see i mean now climate change is such a it's on the forefront some people argue it's the number one concern of our world right now that we should be focusing on and often you see on the internet you'll see like before and after pictures of you know glaciers and one of those things is river levels You'll see, I can't think of any specific ones that I've seen, but you'll see like, oh, here was this river in 1996, and here it is now. It's like almost bone dry. Well, How is the Ottawa River when it comes to the actual levels of, of the water? Yeah, like the Colorado River that doesn't make it to the ocean anymore. I think that's, that's the one in, I saw, yes. Yeah, that's insane. And that's a lot of, because of the diversions and taking water out um, and huge populations like... Las Vegas sucking yeah, up that water. That but <laughs> isn't supposed to be there. It's just the city in the desert that's yeah. drawing all this water. Yeah. So uh, Ottawa River, I mean, we, well, this year was pretty interesting in the Ottawa River because we, we um, had water levels that we've never seen before since we started collecting the record. Like it, higher than ever. Yeah, higher flooding. than ever. Yeah, higher than ever that we've seen since the records began. And um and it's a highly regulated river because we have so many dams and they can, you know, you know, change how they open the gates and close the gates and that kind of stuff. But um, before they had any dams and kind of regulation, uh, you know, coordination amongst all the dams, the city of Montreal was pretty much flooded out annually. Like this is an island in the delta of the Ottawa River. That's what rivers do. They naturally flood. It's good for the ecosystem, floods the banks, it brings little sediment to the floodplains, it's great for growing things, you know, like that's kind of the natural right. rhythm of, of rivers. Um, but then we, you know, build cities places and want to live places and start changing things. And But the Ottawa River is now very highly regulated, so they say, because there's so many dams and... Um, and so since they've started kind of coordinating how they manage the dams they can minimize the flooding in montreal okay so dams are a good thing obviously i mean there's a reason they're in place yeah they're good for that they're great for producing electricity obviously mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they do have some downsides like 
you know, we talked about the American eel. They also create these massive reservoirs. So in the northern Ottawa River watershed, there's these massive reservoirs that have been created that basically displaced all the indigenous people who lived up there and were told, like, better get out, we're flooding your land. And, um, and so then they got kind of stuffed into these little reserve lands and places. And it's crazy. There's this one First Nation north of Wakefield, Barrier Lake First Nation, and they live on one of these massive reservoirs that's being created by Hydro-Quebec, and they are living off diesel energy. Is that right? It's insane. So they're not even getting any benefits of the hydroelectricity. You think they'd have first dibs on it? You think they'd have first dibs, exactly. But, you know, there's a million reasons why Hydro-Quebec and the government is like, oh, it's going to cost us millions of dollars to give you the electricity that we created by flooding out your people. So there's some, and and with flooding these big areas, you get methylmercury production. And so, you know, there's some real downsides to dams for sure. Is it a, what you do, is it politically charged? Do you get a lot of, of um, like, are there lobbyists or are there people, you know, trying to get certain things done uh, in, in a way just to get votes or whatever? Like, is it? Oh, yeah, absolutely you know? politically charged. So it's, you know, that's our role. We're trying to influence decisions, right, for the public good and um, and any, all all those kinds of decisions are typically politically charged, even ones that you'd think like, so for example, in the last five years, we worked on getting what's been, you know, 10 years of work, but to get um, national regulations for sewage treatment so that all across Canada, every municipality would have to do kind of the same level of sewage treatment, you know, it kind of makes sense, because what we were seeing before is Halifax, Victoria, Montreal, people, you know, some cities would just dump sewage in in their water bodies with hardly any treatment others are doing a lot more so and and sewage is really a huge problem across the country when it comes to polluting water especially if you want to start swimming in it and Mm -hmm. recreating in it and so we said okay let's have some national standards but you know all the lobbyists for all the municipalities pushed back so hard and they whined and cried, oh, it's going to cost us so much money to treat our water. And even though, you know, if you start talking to the citizens of that city, they want water where they can swim and fish. But, you know, they're pushing back because it's going to cost money, basically. And it's always about money. So always. it's always comes down to that, you know. And and I get it that there's a lot of different uses and there's a lot of different interests in the river. So you have to, there's always got to be give and take. And, and it's best if everybody can be at the table to understand what all the impacts would be and come to some kind of decision together. But it doesn't always, mostly it doesn't happen that way. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, specifically here in Wakefield, I think it was like four or five years ago maybe, because there's this... this um plant just upstream that was going to die. I mean maybe you know the details I don't remember exactly but it never went through because of the citizens petitioning and uh, putting a stop to it yeah they wanted to build a septage treatment so for right, people like us right. who live in the country have septic systems and they have to be pumped out every couple of years depending on how much you use them and then what gets pumped out has to be put somewhere so and it's one of those kind of gray areas when it comes to regulations, to be honest. Uh, it's amazing what happens. Some of it just gets spread on fields. And 
And so they used to take all the septage from our region and they'd send it to the city of Gatineau sewage treatment plant and they'd run it through their system. But city of Gatineau was getting, their city's growing quickly and they could no longer um, take the waste because they were at capacity, essentially. Like they were dealing with the waste from their own city and they couldn't even Mm -hmm. basically deal with that. So they let everybody in this MRC know, like, you know, three years from now, we're not going to be able to take your septage, so better figure something out. So they hired a consultant who basically put together this archaic plan that you might see in the 1900s about like, yeah, we're going to build this septage treatment plant. It's going to go on the banks of the Gatineau River. It's going to be upstream of Wakefield. And, you know, I wasn't very happy about it at all as somebody who uh, loves to swim right here on this river. And and so essentially Ottawa Riverkeeper brought, we worked with, we've, we work with the Friends of the Gatineau River. They're one of our partners. Right. And uh, we started bringing in some subject matter experts. And, you know, I know quite a bit about <laughs> sewage these days. It's crazy. Um, and, you know, we started talking to the politicians and saying, look, it's, it's the plan is, is flawed. It's not very good. It's not a good idea for all these different reasons, and that was good. But what was really good was getting the grassroots involved and mobilizing residents. And I've never felt so proud to be like part of the Wakefield community when there were so many people standing up for their river. Like we had these marches, and people made signs. And, yeah, I remember it was a big thing around town, and it was an amazing turnout. And people spoke really loud and clear, like this river is really important to us, and and that's what it takes. Like that's what I've been mobilizing around the Ottawa River watershed because we said that decisions are political, but there's nothing that lights the fire and a under a politician more than their constituents up in arms. And if nobody's saying boo, things will just happen. And if you can kind of figure out what's going on, raise awareness, get people on board to, you know, voice their concerns, that's what's really, really important. And I think still continues to be important in advocacy work like you, mm-hmm. you need the grassroots people have to say what it is that's important to them what do they value what do they want and 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 we know that people make decisions based on values you know and i've seen it play out in different issues around the watershed and and uh so getting people involved is critical yeah and it's it's like you said it's super inspirational to see it kind of happen how does he how do people even find out about certain things like how does someone know that there's this plan to have a plan upstream like how does that even come out well this is where it's really important to be involved in your local politics you know you go to council meetings or um you talk consistently to people like i try to know people in the bureaucracy and Mm -hmm. in staff and that kind of stuff. But I know like some of our work we do, we're just like constantly reviewing uh, registries for projects that, you know, we do have some decent processes in some of our um, provinces that will help you understand what projects are being proposed and put forward. And so, but again, it takes like, somebody being on top of it and seeing what's coming down the hoops and you know i'm in my work in freshwater protection i'm pretty connected across the country with other people who work in freshwater protection and so we give each other heads up and you know try to work together as much as possible to um because you know there's not that much capacity and 
So, um, you know, it's, it's a variety of ways to find out what's going on. <laughs> yeah, because I always thought that. I'm like, how do people, I mean, and thankfully they know because I, I was under the impression that they could just all of a sudden pop up. You're like, oh, there's what's... There's just this factory upstream, this, you know, dumping things in the river. What's the correlation between the quality of a river and the drinking water uh, around that municipality or the municipalities that are on that river? Yeah, good question. Um, Well, so the Ottawa River uh, provides drinking water for probably over 3 million people if you count Montreal, because Montreal draws its drinking water, most of its drinking water out of the Ottawa River, yeah. Um, And... It would be considered, like, the city of Ottawa considers it a pretty clean source of drinking water, but obviously it has to be treated. You can't drink it raw. There's all kinds of things in it, from pesticides to radionuclides. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And so it's a whole technology just to treat drinking water, and not all municipalities have the same sort of capacity to treat drinking water, too, or the same kind of expertise to... Um, monitor the system and make sure it's doing the right thing. We we hear a lot about the state of drinking water in indigenous mm-hmm. communities, um, and they're relying on outside consultants to come in. And uh, so um, it's like you know, groundwater is really going to give you probably most often better drinking water quality if you can protect your aquifer um and it's a little bit more limited like surface water you have so much of it and it's continuous um it will it will vary at times of year in terms of how difficult it is to treat the drinking water like i've had calls from the city of ottawa's drinking water plant and they'll say like hey meredith you know if there's anything going on up up river like we're seeing really, really high sediment loads in the water right now are really high um, suspended sediments. And that really has an impact on how well they can treat the water because they're adding chemicals and they have all these different processes. How often do you get those kind of calls? Not too often, maybe once a year or mm-hmm. once every couple of years. Or, um, and I know that the city of Ottawa has been working with the city of Gatineau in one of these rare cases because they don't work together that often, but their, their water treatment technicians, the guys who guys and gals who are responsible for treating the drinking water, they work together because it's the same body of water that they're drawing the drinking water from. So just to make sure they're up on the technologies and what each other is doing and um, such. And But it's interesting. And so um, most municipalities that so like I've been some of the municipalities on the Ottawa River for example that are pretty small have converted from having um you know groundwater systems to then putting in a water filtration plant on the Ottawa River but they really rely heavily on consultants to right. like design that and build it and and operate it for them and uh you know where you are in the pecking order on the river like whether you're downstream of the big city and right. i know that there's some european cities where they make the municipalities put their drinking water intakes downstream of their wastewater outflow and they're more conscious of, of what they put in yeah to really give them incentive to clean their waste stream as right. much as possible well, that's pretty smart yeah 
Why, why do you say that uh, Gatineau and Ottawa don't necessarily work together a lot? Is it because of the provincial government thing? Because two different provinces and it's a bureaucracy? Yeah. So that's one of the challenges that we face in the Ottawa River watershed is the river, Ottawa River is the boundary between Quebec and Ontario. Right. And uh, even though it's the same shared river, there's been no collaboration between the two provinces on protecting it or even understanding it or doing science or monitoring. So... Um, for example, the city of Ottawa and Gatineau, when I first came to the Riverkeeper, which is about 13 years ago, they didn't even meet to talk about uh, the the science of the Ottawa River. Like, what data do you have? What are you using? You know, right? so over the years, we've been changing that and it's been increasing. But yeah, it's a huge, you know, language uh, province, language, culture, all those mm-hmm. things have provided challenges. Wow. Why do you think there's 300,000 Indigenous First Nations people that uh, don't have access to clean drinking water? Is that um, is that a geography thing or is that a water treatment facility uh, issue? It's a priority thing. It's a priority thing. You know, uh, the way that things have fallen is that now these First Nations reserves are a creature of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And... In all the other municipalities, water treatment is a provincial responsibility. Oh, got it. Okay. <clears throat> so now this is on the reserves. It's a federal responsibility. And to be honest, like, they just haven't made it a priority. There hasn't been enough squeaking wheels, I guess. And uh, so it's one of those things that's just kind of fallen through the cracks. Because for them, I guess, as long as there's a, a treatment plant on there, they're just kind of like tick a box it's there and that's it yeah pretty much wow. what um we we're talking about the colorado river and it doesn't reach the ocean anymore what happens in a case like that where a river just doesn't you know empty out into an ocean does it affect i mean it must affect so many levels the life and, and all this kind of stuff yeah well all the people that relied on that water for one and uh and then i it would impact you know, the estuary where the river would typically meet the ocean. Mm-hmm. Those are really productive areas in the ocean. Um, as far as like ocean life? And, and yeah, stuff. yeah. So, I mean, I think, I don't even know, the implications would be domino effects and huge, but there's, you know, such, a, for, for humans, such a focus on just water quantity mm-hmm. and and there's this new, like, I say new, it's not that new, but it's still very progressive is this concept of water for life and that we're always allocating water for human use and we're trying to get onto this like we should be allocating water for nature and, you know, preserving water just for nature and all the things that need water outside of humans. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of of water bodies, um, again, it's provincial in terms of water allocation. And so they allocate water to all these different whether it's like a municipality or a golf course or an industry and in a lot of places if you start to add up all the water allocation it's exceeds the amount of water that's in the river or the so there hasn't even been a very good thoughtful process on Mm -hmm. water allocation which is pretty interesting do you believe in climate change because, you know, you see all these crazy hurricanes happening right now, Irma, and then there's uh, Katia right behind it. There's like, it's just crazy. They've never seen anything like it magnitude-wise. And then you have these rivers that are drying up. And do you believe that is, um, yeah, 
climate ch- a climate change thing or a human oh, thing? Yeah. Or, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, climate change is human induced, right? Right. Well, um, I'm glad you said because so many people. Well, it's, it's astonishing the amount of people that just don't think humans had anything to do with it. They think it's a natural cycle of the Earth, and no matter what. But if you just look at the parts per billion of carbon dioxide in the uh, atmosphere that we've 100 percent contributed to and uh, we're at the point of no return uh i mean it's undeniable but it's bizarre that people would just not um you know subscribe to that idea that it's real and that it's human you know caused by humans and that we should probably start doing something about it but everybody thinks there's not everybody a lot of people you know, say it's a conspiracy to take away certain jobs or to lie in people's pockets, which is insane. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, the implications, climate change and rivers are <clears throat> these, these you know, flooding experiences that we're really seeing a lot of all around the world, but we just recently had that here. And um, so I find what is really interesting is that in... Canada, what's driving better science around climate change and water is the insurance companies. It's not, I mean, it's not like, oh, loss of life or infrastructure, or like, oh, we better get on this. It all comes back down to money, right? And so, because of the number, claims, number stuff? one claim is water damage Shit. from insurance companies, and they've been spearheading um, flood floodplain mapping, um, mitigation for municipalities creating tools and you know this is all being spearheaded by our insurance companies is that right yeah which wow. is pretty fascinating for sure it, well it's kind of like it, it boils down to like you said money where it's not it's not even for our our better in the sense it's for the companies like it's like a walmart selling organic food which they do now people go wow walmart's such a good company and no it's because they saw a trend and saw that there's money to be made and they can sell organic food and people will buy it so it's kind of like this weird thing where people go oh insurance companies are doing the right thing it's like yeah but for insurance companies ultimately yeah you said you've been a the ottawa riverkeeper for 13 years how does one get to get to that like what's your background what did you study how did you uh, you know, because you're from North Bay, how do you end up in this in this area? Yeah, well, I studied. Um, I'm an engineer, actually, by training, Is that right? and uh, studied uh, water resource environmental engineering, and then I did a master's degree that was a little bit more policy focused, but resource and environmental management. So I became really interested in, in rivers, but mostly I was interested. Like I saw what engineers were doing rivers around the world you know like putting containing them and hardening the walls and isolating them from their floodplains i thought this is ridiculous there's got to be better ways and so i thought okay i'm i gotta know what they know so i went into engineering and and um and so then I started doing, I studied in my master's level, I studied with this amazing guy bob newberry who's a river engineer and and um I learned so much from him and he started, he was doing a lot of stream restoration work, but he, he had done tons of big work for like big hydro corporations. But then he started doing a lot of stream restoration. So I went into that field. I lived in BC and at that time, um, the province 
had a lot of money for watershed restoration because all the logging practices were decimating these salmon rivers. Is that right? And so I would do watershed assessments. So I got to go up in the helicopters and do all these assessments and then be right in the streams and doing restoration projects. And I liked it, but it also felt kind of like end of pipe. I was like, God, you know, there's, we, we should be stopping this before it happens. And, um, and I started working a little bit more in the advocacy world. I worked with the David Suzuki Foundation. And then we moved east because my partner is a forest ecologist and he was wanted to do his PhD with this guy out of Montreal. And so I reluctantly left the coast and the mountains, which I loved, and uh, but came back, at, you know, here, which and we've, you know, landed in the cream in Wakefield. So no mm-hmm. regrets there. But um, I kind of serendipitously found out about this kind of waterkeeper world uh, through a friend of mine who was like, look, this is what you do. You know, they're, they're just thinking about starting this waterkeeper group in Ottawa. And so I, I kind of jumped in and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just do this for a couple of years and then, you know, move on, have another whatever. But I, I got it. It was a nice fit for me, but I got really passionate about it. And, uh, here I am, 13 years later, still a riverkeeper. But I grew the organization, so it was like I was the only mm-hmm. person. And uh, But working with waterkeepers from around the world, which I found extremely interesting and fascinating and all kinds of really neat people who were basically the one shared thing that everybody had was they were really passionate about protecting that water body where they lived, you know? This, right. They were, some of them were... You know, they had such a variety of backgrounds. But um, I, you know, I got really into it and uh, grew, grew the organization. And now there's 12 staff and we have hundreds of volunteers and, you know, a pretty big presence. When 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 we critique something, it gets pretty good uptake. And mm-hmm. so it, it feels like we've got a great, you know, constituents now that will really speak up for the river. So it's great. And I mean, having, you know, you grew up on the water, so it must be, there must be this rewarding side to it and knowing that you're definitely more than doing your part and making sure people have clean water to, uh, you know, to live and play and and, and all that stuff. Well, I think it's such an, it's a critical piece of Canadian identity and values and heritage and, and, uh, you know, having that ability to just like, live off the river is really important mm-hmm. what happens if you have a gulp of river water for example here by the covered bridge if you're swimming <laughs> and you ch- by accident have a drink or two is it fine is oh it, yeah you're yeah. fine i drink out of the gatineau river quite a bit um and i know there's some people who actually draw their drinking water right out of the gatineau river um you know it's there's not going to be any um, immediate effects, but there could be chronic effects. So if over time, probably not on the Gatineau River, to be honest, but the Ottawa River for sure, like there's lots of chemicals mm-hmm. that get put in the river through sewage, through industry, um, that you don't want to be drinking right. every day, yeah, all day. But, you know, a couple of drinks, it's not like there was a case when the Thames got so polluted that one guy who fell in actually ended up dying just from the pollution of yeah from the no pollution way. and the thames at the height of pollution but wow. um you know who knows what happened but this is it like you can get this is why we, we're fighting so hard to have 
announcements around sewage going in the river because it's not about, you know, the E. coli that we use as an indicator to measure, you know, the, 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 that there's sewage in the river. It's like there's pathogens, there's viruses, there's things that can make you quite sick. So yeah. we're, we're saying, like, obviously we want to stop that practice of dumping untreated sewage in the river because it still happens, but we want to know when it's happening so that the cities will at least say, really sorry, we had to open up the gates, but... In these locations, just know there's sewage going in the untreated sewage going in the river right now. Like we really think we have a right to know, and that's one of our campaigns that we're working on right now. Cool. You said you worked for the uh, David Suzuki Foundation for a bit mm-hmm. when you were out west. Why do Why do some people not like him? I don't understand that. Like, I know some conservative people that just think he's the devil, and I don't. I I personally don't understand. I'm like, it seems like everything he's doing is pretty good for a lot of people what's what's up with people i think it's typically a lack of understanding right you know and uh they make quick judgments and you know he he has a place on an island he drives a plane he you know whatever people will find but you know without you know discounting all the good things that he's doing and and you know, he's quite smart, and yeah, he's outspoken, and sometimes he says things that are a little, you know, out there, but, you know, as he said, I'm an elder now, I can say whatever I want. (laughs) Um, So, I I think it's lack of understanding, and people just wanting to find, you know, something to to poke. Some people just need something all the time, just just to fight. Do you, where where do you stand down fishing when it comes to life in the rivers? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that, you know, I I think, like, water keepers, we really want to connect people to their water body. Like, I think that connection is really important. So whether you're connecting by going swimming every day in the river and being like, this is awesome, or maybe you're, you're just out on the river fishing and that brings you peace and that makes you really love that place, or maybe you're fishing because you need, you know, for sustenance, um, it's, I think there are sustainable ways to, to fish, and if we can practice those sustainable ways and it connects people to the river so that they become advocates for protecting it, then I think it's good. But the key is those sustainable ways, right? Like whether it's catch and release or the kind of fishing gear you have or... I mean, on the Ottawa River, we, we really don't have any commercial fisheries anymore, mm-hmm. Um, which is unfortunate, but we could probably bring them back if we really wanted to, right? Um, but I think it's, again, it's that importance of connecting and, and realizing that the river su- sustains us. And, and even though there's some people that are so far off that now, we could get back to that at some point if we needed to or had to, and it would be smart if we could. Right. Some people say fish and release that uh, uh, it's not as good as they think because they, I've heard this recently for some reason, I don't know where, but uh, some people were claiming that you might see the fish swim away, but they almost always die anyway. Is that is that true? I think uh, there's um, a prof that we uh, work with sometimes, uh, Stephen Cook up at Carlton, who's actually doing research right now on that exact topic, oh, that right? catch and release and... Uh, and yeah, I think like I've heard something about, you know, 
having getting fish and you know having that little chase with it is and once you get that fish and put it back it's like putting somebody who's just run a marathon and dunking their head in the water and you know it's hard on the fish I think but um yeah so I don't really know all the details and I'm not up on all that research and it is something that I think about a lot, but I do think that we should always have that right to be able to go into our water bodies and cast a fishing rod and catch a fish that is healthy enough that we can eat it. You know? Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe when you uh, maybe when you do have the data on that catch and release, I'll have you back. I could talk to you about all day. I know you're like on a bit of a time crunch, so I'll let you go. We'll go for the close here. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I could easily talk to you all day. It's fun to uh, talk to somebody so passionate about what they do, and it really comes across. And uh, I know that the listeners uh, will uh, like it. And um, because it is, uh, you're doing the good work, and uh, I appreciate it. And thanks for thanks for doing the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. All right, and watch your head. Waste of time. A waste of time. A beautiful waste of time. And there it is, another one in the books. Thanks to my guest, Meredith Brown. That was a fun, fun uh information filled interview i hope you enjoyed it as much as much as i did i cannot talk right now uh thanks to you for listening always you i appreciate it wakefield sessions this is it week one is in the books five episodes in a row if you haven't if, if this is the first one you're listening to go back there's four others uh, i would like to uh, thank all of my guests greg stone greg paul stone pat mar excuse me Hamayuk, Holly, Jarrett, and uh, I should have written, should have written this down. Enid Goodman, and of course Meredith Brown. It's been a good week. I look forward to uh, next week and interviewing a bunch of other people. And uh, thank you, Wakefield. Thank you, world. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, everybody. And as always, watch your head. Waste of time. Just a waste of time